Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. This is the second episode of our monumental tour through the history of the Football World Cup, which of course is coinciding with the latest iteration of the tournament in Qatar. And Tom, uh, yesterday we were talking about the origins of the World Cup, we were talking about its political significance, the way it had been co-opted by Mussolini in the 1930s, but also the way it was wrapped up with kind of nationalism and nation building and sort of political statements to the world. So we ended in 1950 with Brazil's defeat. Uh, we now find ourselves, we'll have a lot more Brazil to come, but we now find ourselves in 1954. And the entrance into our story of um, everybody's favorite World Cup competitor, <laughs> the Germans. <laughs> yes. So, so we, we said, didn't we, Hitler didn't really, he wasn't a great fan of, of, uh, of football. And his no. focus for his propaganda was obviously the Olympics in 1936. There was absolutely a German team. Um, it uh, And there was one figure in particular, a man called Sepp Herberger, who yes. uh, had been involved with the infrastructure of the uh, the German national team from 1932. The year before, Tom, he joined another organization, <laughs> yes. the, uh, the Nazi party. Right. Uh, and so in 1954, when the World Cup is held in Switzerland, he is he is the German manager and um, his diaries cover the entire period from 1932 to 1954. Right. And uh, you can read them and not once in all those diaries, is there a single mention of the second world war? Crikey. So his focus is very, very much on football. That is, I mean, I'm sure he, he joined the Nazi party simply so that he could carry on being involved in the management of the, the German football team. He's very kind of yeah. laser visioned. He's a he's from a Catholic family in um, rural Baden-Württemberg, um, and yeah, he's, he joined the Nazis. And he's this incredibly kind of wily manager. I mean, actually, Germany had been kicked out of FIFA, Tom, at the end of the Second World War, as had Japan with Japan, yeah, for poor behaviour off the field. And um, and uh, <laughs> actually, interestingly, the English FA, who had bitterly resisted the admission of the old central powers after the First World War, they actually lead the campaign to have the Germans brought back in for 1954. And interestingly, I mean, the, the, the war casts a very long shadow. Actually, telling this this whole podcast, the Second World War casts a much longer shadow than I had anticipated. Yeah. Um, so the Germans actually play. See, do you know who they play to qualify for the World Cup? No. They play the Saarland. Oh, so, oh yes, I do. Yes, of course. So the, the yes. Saarland had been, had, yes. which is obviously part of Germany, had been detached from Germany at the end of the Second World War and made into a French protectorate, and was only allowed to rejoin West Germany after a referendum. So the Saarland actually participates yeah, separately in the World Cup in 1954. Um, but also, we've mentioned the manager, the, the captain, uh, yeah. Fritz Volta, um, yes. had been a paratrooper on the Eastern Front, hadn't he? 
Yeah, um, so and he was about to be shipped off to Siberia when what is it? A Hungarian. It's an amazing guard. Amazing. Kind of spots him and remembers him from a match amazing, that Germany and Hungary had played. Amazing story. So he's one of these people who Herberger manages to protect his players from serving on the front lines in the Second World War. So Walter is a paratrooper, but he's kept behind the lines. But he's captured at the end of the war, first by the Americans, and then he's handed over to the Russians. And it looks like he's going to go off to Siberia. Basically, if you go to Siberia, you, you either stay there forever or you die. And um, it's exactly that. that so the, the guards and prisoners are having a kick around a football or something. Uh, Walter gets kind of involved, and the Hungarian guard says to him, I know you. Didn't you play against us in, in Budapest? And the next day, his name is removed from the lists, and he's allowed to go home. And he repays the Hungarians, Tom. Yes, by, by, by defeating stamping, them in the final. By stamping on their <laughs> dreams. In uh, So Hungary are, are by the, far the best, aren't they? They are the team that should have won the 1954 World Cup. They had been unbeaten for four years before the tournament. They had this rich tradition. I mean, Jonathan Wilson, who we talked about in the last podcast, his brilliant history of Argentina, he's also written a brilliant history of Hungary. And he sort of has this theory that Hungarian football was incredibly innovative in mid-century because of coffee houses, because people would spread out in coffee houses designing tactics. And certainly the Hungarians, they are by far the best team in, in Europe, if not the world. They had famously been the first team to beat England in England at Wembley, at the Empire Stadium, victory for communism over imperialism, 6-3 in 1953. They, they get to the final in the Vankdorf Stadium in Bern. The most amusingly yes, I knew you'd stadium enjoy that. in the world. I knew you'd enjoy yes. that. I, I, I wanted to get in before you. Uh, they go 2-0 up, and they've actually already played Germany already in the tournament and beat them 8-3. So, and it's the classic thing, you know, so often in the World Cup, they go 2-0 up, and at that point you know that, you know, disaster, <laughs> disaster beckons. Well, you let your foot off the accelerator, I guess. That's exactly what happens. The Germans come back, the Germans win 3-2, and Felinch, Pushkas, and these amazing Hungarian players never get the the gold that they deserve. So, so the the, the manager, the captain, both obviously uh, have their have played their role in in the Second World War. Uh, is it also true this? And this is a story again. So, in the first episode, we talked about these legends that grow up, and they they're impossible to prove. There is a story, isn't there, that all the Germans were on amphetamines? Yeah, I think uh, that's... And um, that this is a legacy of the uh, the Luftwaffe pilots using them to stay awake. I think that's. Dubious. I've seen that repeated yeah. a lot. Um, but again, as we as we said in the first podcast, the trouble is there's allegations, but there's no hard evidence. And what always happens with the history of the World Cup is that allegations or speculation soon turn into supposedly hard facts, repeated endlessly and recycled without anybody ever really checking whether the, the origins of the stories are true. Now, you mentioned the reaction. So first of all, in Hungary, where the Hungarian team were absolute national heroes, they become villains overnight. There are demonstrations, there are, you know, they, they can't go home at first. But the goalkeeper doesn't have to burn the goalposts. No, like the, the Brazilian goalkeeper, access, yeah, no. no. I mean, actually, and the Hungarian team, it's only two years before the Hungarian uprising, and most of the, the top, well, at least some of the top players end up fleeing to the West. So Pushkash, the captain, he ends up playing for Real Madrid. Uh, Gibor and Kokchish, they end up playing for Barcelona and so on. So that's kind of the end of Hungary. It's a tr it's a tragic story actually because that's the end of Hungary as a as a as a force, the mighty Magyars. But actually, so I thought when we were preparing this that this would be a story about Hungary. But what's much more interesting is Germany. So it's called it's called the miracle of Bern because the Germans were so unfancied and they came back to win three two their first World Cup after the Second World War and. Subsequently, people like so Joachim Fest, the great West German historian, said this moment, this match was the true birth of the country. And there's this well, phrase. It's the first time that the national anthem has been played since the Second World War, I think, in public. Well, well. Is that right? Um, I don't know if it's the first time, but the national anthem is a bit of a story, Tom. Because. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. So everybody sort of says so traditionally, and this is the story that FIFA tell about the 1954 World Cup. It's a lovely story about reconciliation after the Second World War and the Germans, you know, being rebuilt as a modern progressive nation. And the Germans uh, associate it with the phrase, wir sind wieder wer, we are somebody again. Lovely. Unfortunately, there is some evidence <laughs> that the Germans had not perhaps changed as much as one might hope. So I reviewed a book last year by, called Aftermath by a German writer, a German historian called Harold Jener. And the real shock shocking revelation of that book, the story of that book, is actually 
how little Germany changed in the 1950s. I mean, this is Jena's book is incredible, sort of revisionist, and he has all this stuff about surveys and polls showing that you know lots of Germans had not long after Hitler's death had not reneged on their kind of Nazi commitments or their their ideological affiliations. So what happens at the final? Some of the German fans do sing the national anthem, but they refuse to sing the new words. They sing Deutschland, Deutschland über alles. But the real shocking thing is the president of the German Football Association, who's a man called Pico Bauvens, he holds a celebration in a Munich beer what cellar. Could possibly go a wrong? Beer hall. <laughs> And Tom, not just any Munich beer hall. So the original beer hall where Hitler had had the beer hall putsch um, in the 1920s, where the Nazis always used to assemble for the anniversary every year, that had been blown up in a bomb in, I think, 1939. So they had moved their annual celebration to a different beer hall nearby. This is the beer hall that the FA president decides he will have the meeting in to celebrate victory. And does he celebrate their Führerprinzip? He does. He says, basically, he says to the players... Your victory is a victory for the Führer principle, the Führer principle, and you were inspired by the spirit of the god Wotan. <laughs> but, I, I mean, to be fair, the Führer is probably not Hitler there, is it? It's, um, it's Herberger, the manager. Yeah, unfortunately, Bowens had, had, joined, had been a Nazi party member himself, had been a Nazi party member since 1933. And, Tom, you think that... But lots of Germans listening to that did not take such a charitable view, including the president of the West German Republic, who gives a speech a few days later reprimanding Bauvens for this incredibly inflammatory speech about the Führer Prinzip and all this sort of stuff. And the German papers sort of go out of their way to try and distance themselves, but the damage has actually been done. And this is, I didn't know any of this until I started researching it. In East Germany, the newspapers, the communist papers seize on this and they say, I mean, the amazing lines. When fascists start singing Deutschland über alles in the Horst Vessel song, that has nothing to do with sport. That has to do with death, says the East German papers. And they, they say of, of Fritz Walter, he once wore a Wehrmacht uniform. Um, he could say that luckily for him, the war ended with Soviet imprisonment, but, but other players were not so lucky and were killed. Why do we need to remember them now? Because the policies of Konrad Adenauer, that's the, the, Chancellor, the Christian Democrat Chancellor of West Germany, they are clearly steering the same course as Hitler. So you'd expect the East German papers to say that. See what the Daily Mirror said, Tom, in Britain? I did, yes. Nothing can stop these unlovable people. Here comes swaggering Germany. Yeah. German businessmen swarm all over Europe, even in football, not a noticeably German sport. They wipe out the Hungarians. But it's not just the British, is it? The Danes. The Danes. All that was, all that was yeah. lacking at the final whistle was the Seagull. And the most striking one, actually, given that the Franco-German rapprochement with the birth of the European community is Le Monde. Pierre Faber, their star columnist, says... Uh, the memory of these thousands of German fanatics who went to support their team will be lasting. Sport, uh, certainly, but not only sport. Fanaticism, revenge, Uber Alice, Herberger, Weimar, Adenauer, the European defense community. That is how it all begins again. I mean... Okay, well, so I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I had always thought that it was um, a monument to European reconciliation. No. So the next two World Cups are held in... Sweden and Chile, and yeah. Brazil wins, wins them both. And we will come to Brazil. But let's just stick on the theme of uh, Germany and England's attitudes to Germany. Because in 1966, as all English listeners will know, the World Cup comes to England and England ended up winning. Uh, and I had always assumed, having grown up against a background of tabloids every time England played Germany, reaching for the Second World War metaphors, that the same had been true in 1966. Yeah. But apparently this is not the case. There, there weren't too many. Uh, it, it wasn't kind of wall-to-wall, Second World War. Not wall-to-wall. Jingoism. There's a bit, there's a bit though. The, da- <laughs> the, da- the Daily Mail, Tom. I mean, great newspaper. <laughs> well, uh, if the Germans beat us at Wembley this afternoon at our national sport, we could always point out to them that we've recently beaten them twice yeah, at theirs. Yes, fine. But that's kind of, I mean, that is the kind of knockabout. The stuff about goose steps and Sig Heil and all that kind of stuff that, that follows in, in the, 54. Um, the, the 54. I mean, that's a different order of paranoia. Yes, I suppose so. I think you're right that there's, oh yeah, but under, I mean, it, perhaps we shouldn't be too harsh because it's only, it's only nine years after the end of the but, war. 
But it turns out to be paranoia. Yes, it because, turns out to be paranoia. You know, Adenauer, right. is, Adenauer is not a, a fascist. Yeah, uh, West agreed. Germany becomes a kind of model liberal yes, democracy. Agreed. And, and by 1966, it's evident that German democracy is in very rude health. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fair. Yes, and actually the British stuff in 1966 is pantomime. It's done as it a joke. It's a joke. It is. It's and, not as and, a, yeah. And the whole, the whole story of the World Cup in 1966 is very, very carry on. So we've, up to now, it's all been, we've all had dictators and shadows and murders and deaths and all kinds of stuff. 1966, yes, it's an Ealing comedy. It's a carry on film, whatever. So we mentioned in the previous part that um, the Jules Rimet trophy is like the statue of Marduk in Babylon. People kept nicking it and it gets stolen, doesn't it? Before the World Cup begins. Yeah. And then it gets found in very suspicious circumstances by a dog called Pickles. Well, I um, mean, that- and, and the story is that Pickles sniffs it out, but you don't sniff out a, a trophy. A trophy. No. So quite what is going on there so, has always been slightly confusing. So it was stolen from a stamp exhibition. I mean, that tells you just that the slightly <laughs> dowdy image of the World yes. Cup, that they yes. had, they'd had a, a stamp exhibition at uh, the Methodist Central Hall in Westminster that the, the thief ignored all these incredibly valuable stamps with a value up supposedly of three million pounds to steal the trophy, which was worth much less. There's a ransom demand for 15,000 pounds. <laughs> what a fool. Where didn't he steal the 15, stamps? 15,000 pounds. So Why didn't Dr. he steal Evil. the stamps? Anyway, <laughs> this bloke called David Corbett, who's a lighterman on the Thames. And David Corbett is a very 1960s sitcom name. It is. He's a bargeman. And his dog, Pickles, um, finds the, the, the trophy. Discovers it. Discovers it, wrapped in newspaper by a car in Upper Norwood, in London. Uh, Corbett is given a reward of £5,000. So that actually, I mean, the £15,000, it's not nothing, because £5,000 is the equivalent to about £100,000 today. He uses the money to buy himself a house in Surrey, Tom. Yeah. Uh, Pickles is given a medal. Pickles becomes a national hero. He's in a film. He's in a film. He's in a film, and he goes to, he goes to the celebratory dinner after England win, doesn't he? He He's does. He's a kind of honoured member of the team. I mean, he doesn't and then give he, a damn about the dinner, I imagine. Well, He's a but dog. then he... he 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 dies in tragic circumstances. Gosh, terrible circumstances. His his lead gets tangled on a branch. Yes, and so he hangs. He basically hangs himself. I mean, what a t- which is very sad. God Almighty! So we had Getulio Vargas taking his own life and the Brazilian dictator in uh, the, the last episode, and uh, and now Pickles. England is uh, proud to say it's the first to feature a mascot, World Cup Willie. Oh yes, World Cup Willie. Yeah. So so that's great, um, and. Uh, Geopolitically, the most interesting story is the presence of North Korea. Oh, yeah. You, you love this story, Tom. Well, it's absolutely a hermit kingdom. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it is as it is. By and large, it's not famous for its engagement in international sporting events. No. But they qualify by beating Australia yeah. in a playoff, um, and they go to Middlesbrough. Yeah, Ayrson uh, Park. And they play at Ayrson Park. And the people of Middlesbrough take the Koreans to their heart and the North Koreans win. I, I guess after uh, England losing to America uh, 1-0 in the Brazilian World Cup in 1950, probably the biggest upset in World Cup history that Italy lose to North Korea 1-0. Yeah, Pak Du Ik scored the goal very famously. So Pak Du Ik and Jonathan Wilson, who we've been mentioning a lot. <laughs> Yeah. These programs, the great Diane of football. You've history. got to stop going for dinner with uh, informants. Okay, so so he told me this fabulous story about so, so the mystery. So North Korea qualify. They 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 get through to uh, the next round and they go to Liverpool, where apparently they are freaked out by the religious iconography of Loyola House. Is that right? Loyola Hall, where they've been they've been put up. You know the kind of st- baroque statues of the Virgin and Jesus bleeding to death and all kinds of things. And they're they're so freaked out by this that apparently it, it puts them off their stride and they lose and go back. So there are all kinds of of urban myths about what happened to them. Yeah. And the stories that they all got shot or they got sent off to chicken plucking factories or whatever for not. But actually, they seem to have been treated with great honour. And Jonathan said that that. And I may be slightly garbling this, and if I am, and Jonathan's listening, apologies to him. But Ayrson Park gets pulled down. It does? Well, that definitely did happen. So they build a kind of housing estate where it had stood. But they make sure to mark out particular places that kind of holy in the history of Ayrson Park. And one of them is the spot where Pak Du Ik hit 
the winning strike that enabled North Korea to beat Italy. Yeah, hit the winning strike. That's great t- footballing terminology, Tom. Well, whatever. What, Scored the goal. How, how would you? <laughs> no, no, but it's not that. It's 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 the spot where the ball is, and he kicks it right. to go in. Yeah. So that, that is what that's what's marking it. It's the the point where he's standing where he kicks the ball. Yeah. And one day, uh, people are, are, are kind of you know in their in their their homes, and they hear the sound of singing. And they go out, I think this is 2002, they go out and all the members of the North Korean team who played in that match, the surviving members, yeah. are standing around the spot singing a song. <laughs> I don't know what they were singing, but they were singing a song. Probably, yeah, and so they come, on a kind of, they, they come on a pilgrimage to, 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 to commemorate the, uh, this I great I think that story is actually great... true, Tom, because there was, it is they, true, they were brought over, over for a film. As part of a film. By a, yeah. by a documentary maker, yeah. exactly. So very moving, yeah. And 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 apparently the relationship between Middlesbrough and, and North Korea is it, it's as good as as with any anywhere in Britain. I, I'm tempted to say, Tom, that uh, <laughs> people who've been to Middlesbrough can't tell the difference. But that would be a terrible, You're not going to that would be a that, shocking thing to say, and I, I wouldn't be so cheap. But team, teams from Middlesbrough go and play in North Korea, and that's not something that that most people do. No. So uh, so that's a very touching story. Um, the other, I, I guess, the big story is. Um, England against Argentina. So they England meet Argentina in the quarterfinal. Yeah. And in the first part, we talked about how it's the English who who bring football to Argentina. And for Argentina, England remains the home of football and it's the home of of what in Spanish they call El Fair Play. <laughs> El Fair Play. Yeah. Well, also Britain, as we've talked about in our Falklands podcasts, Britain has a very particular significance for Argentines because it was the model for much of the 19th century. It was the kind of informal colonial overlord, the sort of economic overlord. But also there's this whole tradition in Argentina of talking about English piracy yeah. and, the, and what they see as the theft of Las Malvinas, the Falkland Islands. Yeah. So when England played Argentina, there was always an element of being a grudge match, even if at first the English didn't really notice. Yes, and in the quarterfinal they do notice, uh, and the way it's reported by the British press is that um, the Argentines behaved disgracefully, and so Alf Ramsey, the manager who'd played in 1950, hadn't he in Brazil? He had. Yeah, he bans his players from swapping shirts with the Argentine players. He calls them animals. Alan Ball, um, England player says that they were the dirtiest, filthiest team I ever played against in my career. And remember, I played against Revy's Leeds year in, year out. So <laughs> That's one for the Leeds fans. <laughs> damning condemnation there. Yeah. And Hugh McAvenny uh, described it not so much a football match as an international incident. Yeah. And so that set the seal on the English sense that the Argentines are dirty, that they're cheats, that they spit, that they're violent. The sense in Argentina is exactly the same, that the English behaved disgracefully, <laughs> that they were... Yeah. You know, hacking and punk, you know, very, very violent play. Um, and the lightning rod moment is when the Argentine captain Antonio Ratin gets sent off by a German referee yeah. who doesn't speak Spanish. Yeah, for swearing. <laughs> for swearing. Yeah. And and the, how could how could the referee know that? Oh. He couldn't know that. And apparently he was he was, Ratin was asking for a translator. You've been asking. You've been listening to all this Wilsonian Argentine propaganda. <laughs> I have. And Ratten goes off and apparently he, he walks past the, um, he gets sent off, uh, disbelieving, not quite knowing what's happened. And he walks past the, one of the flags on which there's a, there are Union Jacks uh, emblazoned. And he makes a gesture to it. And Jonathan suggests that this is a gesture expressing his doubt that the home of El Fair Play really? could have behaved so badly. How do you, how so do you, how do you make a gesture <laughs> expressing doubt? Well, <laughs> you'd have to ask Jonathan that. And he supposedly, he, he, he goes and sits on the red carpet, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Also, Rat, I mean, Ratten is about 27 feet tall. I mean, Ratten yes. is a colossal man. But I suppose, Tom, for people who don't like football, I mean, the, the thing about the 1966 World Cup that's that's become part of the national imagination in Britain is that it's part of swinging London, the swinging 60s, lovely summer, uh, the England captain Bobby Moore, this sort of handsome blonde defender, um, accepts the trophy from the Queen and all is right with the world. That's a, a that's not quite accurate because actually, uh, if you look at all the press coverage, the British economy had run into trouble in the summer of 1966. So everybody very, very sandbrook. Everybody actually reports <laughs> this as saying, Oh, this is a nice bit of escapism, but basically, you know, the FA newsletter itself said 
the new, the victory is one of the few bright spots in the somber economic situation which faces the country this summer. So there's a kind of national gloom actually surrounding the World Cup, but also abroad, everybody thinks it's a terrible World Cup. Yeah, and and in uh, Argentina, uh, they show World Cup Willie dressed as a pirate. Dressed as a pirate. That that stuff about piracy, they can't get enough of that, can they? No, they can't. So it's World Cup Willie and Margaret Thatcher that they dressed yeah, as pirates. Always dressing up as pirates. As pirates, exactly. So, the, but the nineteen sixty six World Cup is actually an anomaly, Tom, because the nineteen sixty six World Cup is 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 a break in a store in a story that's otherwise one of Brazilian domination. So let's take a break now. And when we come back, we will talk Brazil, Pele, and uh, all things beautiful game. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are whistling our way through the World Cup. And Dominic, we have reached 1970, which is held in Mexico. Many people say it's the best World Cup of the lot. Um, And it's the third World Cup in four to be won by Brazil. Yes. So people may be wondering why we skipped over 1958 and 1962, because we really wanted to do Brazil all in one go. And Brazil is a fascinating story. There's a brilliant book on this by, we mentioned Jonathan Wilson, to my mind, his only great rival as the great historian of football, a man called David Goldblatt, who's written a wonderful book called Football Nation about Brazil and football's importance in the history of Brazil. And he points out at the beginning, Brazil is the fifth largest nation on earth. So it, it's, a, it's, by many measures, a great power. But it has produced no real great art or science or literature to stand comparison with the very best of other countries. The one thing it is actually famous for, that's not to say it hasn't published good writers or good artists, but the one thing it's really famous for is it's is it's football and football has become the unifying force and the sort of the way that Brazil pre- presents itself um, to the world. He has a really interesting theory that one of the things that has made Brazilian football unique is this is the inequality of Brazil. So he says, what the inequality gives you, it gives you um, a, a, a very poor underclass. So the kind of people who actually grow up playing a lot of football in the streets and, and whatnot, and are desperate to improve themselves through football. So the kind of, you know, that that's the that's the sort of the pool of talent, if you like. People who might otherwise go into other 
walks of life, but actually football is all they have. But the inequality also gives you immense sort of um, centers of wealth uh, who can mobilize that production line and get it running. So in other words, the inequality actually in a weird way works in in Brazil's favor. And and it start you know it becomes the the thing that unites with this very regionally economically and and of course racially disparate country. But the I mean the stereotype in in England is that um it's it's all natural flair that it just flows off the streets yeah. all that kind of stuff. But actually in 1970 I mean they've really really trained hard for it haven't they they've gone on um they've got kind of uh, they they send people off to nasa yeah. to study how they how, <laughs> how astronauts have prepared for the moon landing so that so, tom to go back to backtrack to 1958 the first of their wins that was true even then so in 1958 the entire squad are sent for for medicals at, at the best hospitals in rio and they they find i mean this thing about the inequality they find that almost all the squad have intestinal parasites some of them have syphilis they they extract 300 teeth from the players mouths oh uh, because they're rotted they're how many intestinal worms do they hundreds absolutely hundreds <laughs> coiling and writhing uh, <laughs> yeah, okay you don't need to really <laughs> um so brazil is a country that in the late 1950s is really trying to sell itself as the acme of modernity they have a president called Juscelino kubitschek um, he has promised that in five years they will have 50 years of progress. So this is when they're building Brasilia. This is when they are doing all this yes, infrastructure. Great modernist capital. Great modernist. And and the football team is is seen as a, another emblem of modernism. And of course, the player who becomes identified with that is Pele, who we mentioned at the end of the last uh, podcast. So he is he is ve- from a very very poor background. As a boy, he'd worked as a servant in a tea shop to make money. Uh, he's of course black. He plays for a team called Santos in the the town of Santos, which is the port city of Sao Paulo, uh, which is booming in the 1950s and 60s. The fact that he is black really matters because this is part of um, Brazil is trying to re- sort of rebrand itself as a not as a white nation that held slaves, it's a rainbow nation, but as exactly as a multiracial nation. So previously there had been black players um, back in the 1920s. There had been a player called Friedenreich who they call the Black Pearl. But in those days, the black players had whitened their faces with flour and had straightened their hair before matches. I mean, extraordinary to think of them going to all this effort before the games. Well, but then when you look at, at, at the obloquy that gets visited on the, the three black players that, that lose to Uruguay yeah. in 1950, I mean, it's not surprising. Yeah. So Pelé, you know, they, they, they embraced Pelé. In the 1960s, Pelé had been, because he, he was only 17, when they won the World Cup in 1958. So Pele is projected around the world as this sort of tremendous celebrity and this symbol of, of, of how great Brazil is now. Unfortunately, there is a problem. And the problem is that before the 1970 World Cup, so in, in 1964, Kubitschek's successor, a man called Zhao Goulart, had been toppled by an army coup with American support. Basically, all that spending on infrastructure and on Brasilia had seen inflation run completely out of control. The currency had plummeted. The economy had started to fall apart. The army step in. And over time in the 1960s, that army dictatorship becomes ever more repressive. And there's a guy called General Medici who becomes the third. I like to think of him as General Medici. I thought you would. I thought you would. Um, well, a great patron of... Well, he's not a he's not of beauty. He's not a terribly good guy, Tom. I think it's fair to no, say. No, I know he is. He's a fair, I know. So there's a I lot. Know. So so you have your. But he but he is but he is absolutely. I mean, he is using Brazil, the the Brazil football team right. to brand his regime. He is right? absolutely. So he's your classic South American guy, dark glasses, glasses, yeah, torture, repression, censorship. As you say, football. He, they really pump up this nationalism, and and football is the emblem of that. And what's really interesting about that is that has resonances that endure for decades. So anybody who's followed Brazil's presidential election this year very closely might have noticed that um, ex-president Bolsonaro and his supporters very often wore yellow Brazilian team shirts. And that that shirt, which around the world is seen as the, the great symbol of Brazil, that is has become a symbol of Bolsonaro and Bolsonaroism. And a, a lot of the, the Brazilian football team 
were out and proud Bolsonaro. Absolutely. So some of the best-known players, so the best-known player of all, Neymar, who plays for Paris Saint-Germain, one of the best-known players in the world, he is a very vocal Bolsonaro supporter. Um, Thiago Silva, who former Brazilian captain, plays for um, Chelsea, also a Bolsonaro supporter. And, and that often makes people raise their eyebrows because they say, these, these people are from very poor backgrounds. How is it they support Bolsonaro? Also very rich. They're, it's because they're very rich. <laughs> they're very rich. It's footballers tr- often have been seen as conservative because you know they have made it. They are aspirational. They believe in talent and all this sort of stuff. So you can sort of see why some of them might be drawn to a kind of right wing ideology. Uh, and and it's fascinating that Lula's supporters tend to wear the blue away shirt of Brazil, and Bolsonaro's the the yellow. So in in 1970. The manager had been a communist, hadn't he? Shao Saldana, yeah. So the the kind of the infrastructure, the patronage is is well, I mean to call it right wing, I mean it's verging on the fascist. Yes. But the manager is communist, and that is expressive of, of the tensions in Brazil that we see in the recent election. But they boot him I out, mean, Tom. They boot him out before the before the tournament. So Saldana But also because he wouldn't he wouldn't buy um he wouldn't choose um, the general's favorite players the general's favorite players would he that's right uh, so he had to be sacked well he the, he gets increasing criticism um which must have been fermented by the regime and eventually the manager saldania goes to meet a journalist but he takes a gun with him <laughs> presumably <laughs> to shoot the journalist at that point they sack him and they bring in an yeah. ex-player called mario zagallo who basically will will not rock will the do what the, exactly yeah. and then the extraordinary thing so they in 1970s the brazil have already won the world cup twice in 1970 uh, they, the regime build a communications infrastructure for the first time so that everybody in the entire country can watch the matches on television. And this is the, the World Cup is held in Mexico, and this is the first World Cup to be televised in color. It's one reason why the team of Pele is so yeah. embedded in the it's world. It's the kind of the brightness of, and, and the light is so vivid, isn't it? Exactly, it is. Because it, it has that kind of early color TV, yeah. lurid kind of technicolor t- kind of exactly, quality to it. Exactly. Yeah. And Brazil playing in these, in these sort of bright yellow shirts yeah. and they they storm through the tournament they play a series of sort of legendary games beating they beat england uh they beat uruguay the old enemy in the semi-finals and then they thrash italy 4-1 in the final scoring these beautiful goals uh i mean the journal do brazil says after 1970 brazil's victory with the ball compares with the conquest of the moon by the americans so the brazilians i mean we think we're bad in england at these I mean, they compared their defeats well, to Hiroshima. To Hiroshima. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the moon landings. Yeah. Medici, the dictator, absolutely revels in this. He says our players won because of their... It was a victory won in the brotherhood of good sportsmanship with the rise of faith in our fight for national development. Above all, our players won because they know how to play for the collective good. And the problem, I suppose, you have is that Pelé, who is such a sentimental favourite around the world, he is undoubtedly complicit to some degree with the regime. Well, or he just, he's oblivious, do you think? I, do, I don't know. I mean, this is a hard one, Tom. I mean, do we, uh, how do you resolve that? Is he, uh, is he complicit or is he, uh, is, is there such a thing as being oblivious? Well, he is a genius whose focus is football. And he is so, I guess, so idolized that he comes to see the world through you know, in Pele-ish terms, yeah. if such a word. Um, but Pele is not a fool. So Pele, uh, in the 1960s, the, the contrast had been with another player called Garincha, who was a, another brilliantly talented player. Pele had been the model professional and Garincha had been the wayward the wayward one. So Pele was aspirational. He was respectable. He had tried to make money. Garincha had just been sort of hanging around in pubs and being a lad, being a lad. Exactly. And people had sort of held up, columnists had held up Pele and said, this is the model of what Brazil should be. And I think Pele is not a, you know, Pele is not entirely naive. I don't want to think that. Now the thing is, uh, Pele does. There must be, I'm sure there is any waiting. Pele does defend the dictatorship. So in, when he went to Uruguay oh, he? in 1972, okay, right. he said. I don't, want to, I don't want to know this. I'm going to tell you. I, I'm going to tell you any because you need no, to know. I don't want to know this. He said, there is no dictatorship in Brazil. Brazil is a liberal country, a land of happiness. Our leaders know what is best for us and they govern us with tolerance and patriotism. Let's move on. Okay, you've made your point. But actually, Tom, you know what? I'm not going to stamp on Pele because as people often say, what do you do in those circumstances? It's very easy to say, oh, you should join the resistance. Oh, you should, 
you know, had he, sp- I know. his life would well, have changed immeasurably had he spoken out okay. against the regime. I mean, this is absolutely the key to the fascination of the World Cup and the moral ambivalences that surround it that we see in Qatar at the moment. Yeah. That, that so much, it's so compelling, it's so gripping, there's so much kind of, well, I mean, it's famously beautiful is the word that's associated with Palais football. Yeah. But, you know, the excitement of it is kind of so interfused with wealth, with oppression, with, you know, in the case of, of, uh, of, of, Argentina and Brazil in the, in the sixties and seventies with incredibly oppressive dictatorships yeah. that it becomes very difficult to separate them, don't they? So Brazil's triumph in 70, I guess, is also the triumph of, of the, of the regime, which lasts for another as 15 will be years. The case, yeah. As will be the case in Argentina in 1978. Anyway. So, so I think that is a point well made. You just uh, didn't want to hear it. Mo- <laughs> no, I did. I didn't really want to hear it. I don't, I, no, I don't really want to hear it. Well, come on, let's talk about the Dutch. You love the Dutch. Cleanse your I mind love the Dutch. By, yes. by talking so, about the so Dutch. So 1974 in West Germany, which is another classic. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so uh, total football, all that kind of thing. So total football for people who don't like football. So it's the Dutch who've, who've never been a power before. They pitch up in 1974 with this very exciting brand of football where they're all swapping positions and playing a very fluid game. And... So the Dutch are sort of the, the 60s in human form, aren't they? I think that's what people <laughs> yeah. sort of say about the Dutch. Yeah. They all have long hair. They're very free love. They all look very cool. Kind of hanging out in saunas. Yeah. And yeah, with the, with the ladies. A brilliant writer about Dutch football called David Winner uh, wrote a book called Brilliant Orange. Uh, he says, Holland's 1974 team is somehow the summer of love, Sergeant Pepper, Altamont, and the death of John Lennon all in one four-week period because of the trajectory of what happens to them. Yes, because because they're brilliant. They're everyone's favourite to win, uh, and inevitably they lose to Germany, to West Germany, in the the final. And we should say emphasise that it is West Germany, of course, because this is the World Cup where West Germany play East Germany and actually lose. They do, but then come back to win the whole tournament on their native soil, exactly. Um, And just before we come to the final, um, the other... um, Kind of famous incident that happens in the '74 World Cup is the uh, the the Zaire yes um, qualify yeah uh, Zaire former Belgian Congo then Congo um, under another dictator a far more flamboyant one than uh, than the South American variety uh, Mobutu and Mobutu is very very keen that Zaire um, win glory <laughs> for Zaire and indeed for Africa. Yes. And they go there and they lose 9-0 to Yugoslavia. Well, they also lose to Scotland. I mean, that takes some doing. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but they lose 9-0 to Yugoslavia. And um, does Mobutu respond no. well to this? No, he, no, he doesn't. No. So he says, you have all brought shame on the country of Zaire. You are scum <laughs> and sons of whores. Wow. So again, <laughs> you know, people think that uh, criticism of the England team is brutal. I mean... I can't, you can't imagine Rishi Sunak saying that when Harry Kane gets dumped There's out. a very famous um, incident. So in their final match, they are told by Mobutu's men that if they lose by four goals or more... Um, three goals, I think. No, it's four, if, if they lose by four goals, they will not be allowed they to were, return to, to Zaire or their family. I thought they were going to be killed. Or, or they will be killed, exactly. So they actually lose 3-0. But very late in the match, the Brazilians have a free kick and they're about to take the free kick when one of the Zairean players, um, a man called Muepu Ilunga, he just suddenly races down the field and boots the ball wildly out of the stadium. <laughs> and in the commentary, if you watch that, the BBC commentator says, a bizarre moment of African innocence. So that's how people kind of perceive it. They, they don't even know the rules. But actually the truth is they're just desperate to waste time. Yeah. And, and sort of, about 10 minutes to go. And sort of it? spoil the match. And they're 2-0 down at that point. They lose 3-0, yeah. so, but they, you know, that's enough. They, they don't die. Anyway, so that's, that's, I mean, that's again a kind of reminder of... Um, Kind of the brutal circumstances under which yeah. people were playing. So Haiti, Haiti were playing as well in that. In that, they were. That's their only um, World Cup participation. So when we talked about what's his name, Guy Jans, the guy Gaitens, yeah, Gaitens. Um, so he had subsequently vanished in Haiti under Papadoc Duvalier, and um, the Duvalier's regime is still in place in in seventy four yeah. when Haiti goes. So some very unsavoury figures. I mean, on that African thing, Dom, our producer, is just saying it's actually quite sad. It put back the perception of African football decades. And he's right, actually, because even the 1990s, 
So I remember in the 1990s, a British TV program called Fantasy Football, David Baddiel and Frank Skinner, they actually got this guy, what was his name? Um, uh, Ilunga. Ilunga. They got Ilunga. They flew him over to reproduce this moment of him booting the ball away ludicrously. And everyone thought it was hilarious and sort of laughed at him. And, you know, and actually the truth of the matter is there's a pretty dark story behind yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, he was... he was In fear of his life. Was, literally in fear of his uh, life. And all his teammates. Yeah. He was very much taking a bullet for the team. But to return... Or not. Well, not. <laughs> not some. Yeah. But to return to the Dutch. So the Dutch get to the final, and they're going to play the Germans. The Dutch are outraged because the German newspaper, Bilt, has been reporting stories about their... What you described, their... Them. Shenanigans. They've been having naked pool parties with local girls behind their wives' back. The Germans report this, and the Dutch are absolutely furious. Now, the Dutch, at least some of them, it's very clear. We talked at the, right at the beginning about the shadow of the Second World War. That shadow has not gone away. So afterwards, a lot of people talked about how they hated the Germans. They were determined to beat them. I mean, the interesting thing is that quite a lot of the players weren't even born at the time of the Second mm. World War. But one of them definitely was, and that's a man called Wim van Hannigan, who was a great sort of, he was one of the great midfield generals of that Dutch team. Um, he'd been born in 1944. And he, I mean, this is what he said. He said, I didn't give a damn about the score. One nil was enough as long as we could humiliate them. I hate them. They murdered my family, my father, my sister, two of my brothers. Each time I faced Germany, I was filled with angst. So you dig into this story. Van Hannigan was born in February 1944 in a fishing village called Breskens, which is on the, near the Belgian border. And Breskens was at the center of a battle in 1944 called the Battle of the Scheldt, when the Allies were trying to basically break through into the Netherlands. And on the 11th of September 1944, that town, Breskens, had been carpet bombed. And Van Hannigan's father, his brothers, his sister, and his uncle had all been killed. 199 people fifth of the town's population had been killed. So you can see why he felt so strongly. But the only thing is, they'd actually been bombed by the Allies, not by the oh, Germans. Goodness. I did not know that. So he tells that story, you know, I hate the Germans, I hate them because of the war. But yeah. the tragedy of it, well, I mean, it's a tragic story anyway, but the sort of, the tragic irony is that their people who had bombed them were almost certainly the Allies. Um, which who had obviously okay. been you know, bombing to sort of lay the groundwork for their for yeah. their sort of ground troops. Anyway, um, what happens is this incredible final. So the referee, Tom, you'll be delighted to hear, is uh, an Englishman. He's a butcher from Wolverhampton called Jack Taylor, often regarded as the greatest referee of all time, certainly by me. After a minute, the du- he gives the Dutch a penalty. The Germans haven't even touched the ball. And it gets slotted in. And the German captain, do you want to talk about him? Uh, Beckenbauer, who ca- comes to be given the name of Kaiser. Kaiser, I mean. So is wearing the correct sportswear on his feet. Yeah. I assume for a World Cup Unlike final. Kaiser Wilhelm II before the First World War. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and and he says to the referee, doesn't he? <laughs> that basically, words that that's very English behaviour. He behavior. says, uh, Taylor. This is all about the war. Taylor, you are an Englishman. Yeah. I mean, some people, I would take that as a tremendous compliment, but clearly. Um... <laughs> well, yeah. Anyway, the Dutch uh, then, partly because of this, who knows, because of this war stuff, because they're cross about the stories about their misbehavior in saunas, they don't press home their advantage. They just pass the ball around mocking the Germans. Well, because, yes, but that, isn't that the thing that they wanted to kind of show off, basically? And everybody, you know, anyone who listens to the first half of this episode knows what's going to happen. The Germans win 2 1. And yeah. uh, the Dutch are bitter about that to this day. So years later, when they defeated the Germans in the European Championships, one of their players um, mimed wiping his bottom on a German player's shirt in front of all the Dutch fans. Uh, The fans um, flew banners comparing German players to Hitler. Uh, There were all kinds of sort of bitterness and bad blood. Right. So they lose that, but they have a shot at redemption four years later, where the World Cup is being held in Argentina. And this is the most extraordinary story, probably, of all the stories, isn't it? The Argentine hunter in the World it Cup. It really is. Yes. So all the World Cups that we've discussed with the backdrop of dictators using it to sports wash, to you know promote their, their regimes, Argentina in 1978 is the one that is most often compared to the Berlin Olympics. It's the most overt, isn't it? Yeah. It's the most overt, yeah. So the World Cup had been awarded to Argentina in 66. 
at a point when they've already had a military coup, but the regime is not, you know, it's authoritarian, but it's not utterly horrific. Then they got democracy back in 1973, and Juan Perón, the great populist of the of the, who doesn't like football? Who doesn't like football of the post World War II era? He had come back at the age of 187 to become <laughs> president of Argentina. So they they created a logo based on Perón's salute. With so he had this salute where he put both hands above his head, and they 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 made the logo for the World Cup in, in an emulation of Perón's salute. Perón unfortunately dies in July 1974, and he's succeeded by his wife Isabelita. Who's a, she's a sort of a nightclub performer or something who's about 80 years younger than him. Peron, had, he had a thing for nightclubs. He did indeed. Didn't he? And uh, she presides over complete and utter chaos. So there's hundreds and hundreds of bombings and murders. There's inflation at, at a gazillion percent. Uh, the currency collapses. Uh, I mean, there's a point at which Jonathan Wilson says in his history of Argentina, a bomb was going off in Buenos Aires on average every three hours, and there was a political assassination every five hours. So in March 1976, it's a coup. The army kick out Isabelita, and the head of the army, who's a man called Jorge Rafael Videla, he becomes president. And this is not just your bog-standard military authoritarian regime. this is kind of... Chucking people out of helicopters. Poets being electrocuted. Uh, this is yeah, absolutely... People with concrete on their feet being chucked into rivers. Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly. horrendous. So maybe the... I mean, who knows how many people died or or, or are disappeared, as the as the yeah. saying goes. So we're probably... Uh, the sort of... The most common figure you see is 30,000 people um, of their own citizens. So the hunter of as they're called, are very, very keen on the World Cup. They invest about 10% of the national budget, so that's $700 million in building new stadiums, in new infrastructure. They also redevelop... I mean, this is an amazing thing. I mean, this is actually not unheard of at all. I mean, Brazil did this in 2014. Qatar, obviously, are, are no strangers to slightly dodgy infrastructure investments. In Buenos Aires, they build a massive concrete wall so that when you're driving into town, you can't see. All you won't the... see the shanty towns. Yeah, yeah. You t- and they bus people out, don't they, from towns they that do. are playing cities that are playing um, that are hosting World Cup to cities that aren't. It's. I mean, um, it's unbelievable. The guy, the guy who was organising the tournament, is killed in a car bomb because another. He's yeah. a general. <laughs> another general fancies the corruption possibilities. So, general number one is is murdered. And and so, uh, Amnesty International very hostile to it. There's the the the, the kind of the rumbling. In, in world football and beyond is very analogous to what's been happening with Qatar. Yeah. Uh, as with Qatar, it doesn't actually, you know, footballers may speak out against it, but it doesn't stop them from going. Yeah, everybody goes. I think, yeah. I think well, apart from the West German defender, Paul Brighton. Who's a Maoist, Tom. Who was, yes. I mean, so, so actually, you know go. that 1974 final, which is sort of Dutch kids of the 60s versus these grim, grinding Germans. Yeah. That's a complete stereotype because the guy who scores Germany's equaliser, Breitner, is a an overt supporter of Mao's China. Well, so okay, so he so he doesn't go. Yeah, but um, but everyone else does. And the West German um, uh, World Cup had had seen the the kind of the real growth of commercialism, mm-hmm. commercial sponsorship, and so Western companies have a massive, massive commercial investment in Argentina. Yeah, and they're very, very, very keen that the World Cup go ahead. And the other person who is very, very keen to go ahead is Dr. Henry Kissinger. Oh, yes, yeah. Kissinger loves football, to be fair to Kissinger. Kissinger had loved football since his days in Germany as a boy. He's, but he also thinks that the World Cup will be great for... He, he, Kissinger never saw a, right, a right-wing... Um, America, South American dictator that he, he didn't, that, he didn't, that he didn't want to support. The opening game um, is actually West, West Germany against Poland. Yeah. Uh, so terrible game. Kissinger's there, and he um, Kissinger's there, and he's saying this is a World Cup for peace oh, and all that kind of nice. stuff. So, um, so um, <laughs> Argentina are in um, a very, very tricky group. So they're with France, they're with Italy, they're with Hungary, and after the Hungary match, Argentina just scraped through two one. Uh, one of the uh, one of the Junta. Um, warns one of the Argentine team <laughs> that you better get out of this or else it will literally be a group of death. Oh, God, I've been told that. Yeah, I mean, this podcast has been full of people making threats to players or, you know, throat slits. And this is also another one where, so so all the rumours that we've been talking about throughout this series, so 
very strong rumours that the Argentine team in the match against France are on amphetamines. Mm. And then uh, they, they get through the group of death and they have to play Peru, don't they? And all kinds of stories around this. So it's, it's this one of these weird structures that you sometimes have in the World Cup where they, you, you get through the group and you have to then go into another group. They're in a group with Brazil and Peru. And um, whoever, they and Brazil are kind of level. So Argentina will have to beat Peru by four goals to get through to the final. So that, interestingly, actually, there you mentioned um, sometimes, you mentioned with Brazil that their, their original manager Jao Saldana had been a communist. The manager of Argentina is a former communist, Cesar Luis Menotti. Menotti is a very bohemian figure, kind of chain-smoking intellectual. Very gaunt, isn't he? Very gaunt, exactly. Now, his, so his team, he's got them through to this, what's effectively, I suppose you could say, a semi-final against Peru, which they need to win by four goals. And this is the single most controversial match politically in the World Cup's history because Argentina win that match 6-0. And ever since, there have been endless rumours for quite good reasons uh, one of which is that um, <laughs> shortly before the match uh, Videla who's the head of the regime, Argentine regime is seen going into the Peruvian dressing room it is said with Henry Kissinger yeah well there are three different there are three separate consp- I mean there's the trouble with the conspiracy theories Tom is when they start to multiply you think I mean, <laughs> well, there you, are too many. You could do, you could do, or you could say, well, the evidence is stacking up. So here we go. First of all, there's the claim that Videla and Kissinger visit the Peruvian dressing room. The Peruvian players tell their story, or one or two of them claim that Kissinger was there. Kissinger denies it, doesn't he? But Kissinger denies it. But they sort of, they, they don't, they say that there's no deal done. So they say, we don't know why he was there. He just wished us good luck and then left. We didn't know what that meant. That's number one. Number two, which was made by the Sunday Times some years later. Uh, the Sunday Times claimed that the Argentine government had shipped 35,000 tonnes of grain to Peru and released $50 million in frozen Peruvian assets. So that's conspiracy theory number two. And conspiracy number three, which was made by a left-wing former Peruvian senator, he said it was actually part of the Condor plan which was the South American kind of thing of murdering dissidents with sort of CIA help. He said that basically we in Peru had sent the Argentines 13 people to be tortured because the Argentines were absolute specialists in this. Mm. But the Argentines said they would torture them only if we threw the match. Yeah. Now the problem, you know, you mentioned, you've mentioned Jonathan Wilson, the historian of Argentine football. Wilson says in his book, the problem with all these allegations is A, as so often, there is absolutely no evidence. And B, the fact is that Peru actually were quite unlucky to lose 6-0. They played, started playing very well. They hit the post, um, which you can't contrive. You know, it's not possible to contrive that. As Trough says in his book, it's fair to say that either not all the Peruvians were in on it or some of them must have been exceptionally good actors. So he says the Peruvian goalie makes a series of improbably good saves. Yeah. Which you wouldn't do if you were trying to throw them out. Okay. Okay. Well, so so that's that's one conspiracy theory. But my favourite conspiracy then, theory of all about the 1978 World Cup is that at the the, the final against the Dutch, yeah, which is Argentina against the Dutch, uh, the one of the people who attended the final was <laughs> Dr. Josef Mengele. Oh God, I'm like, I have heard this. <laughs> Yeah. What was he? Apparently, but what influence could he possibly have on the? No, he'd just been, you know, he'd been invited by the junta, right? Because they thought he might enjoy it. Well, he probably would have. I mean, obviously, it he'd be rooting for Argentina. He would have been. been. So the Dutch, actually, the one thing I will say, we said everyone went, but uh, the Dutch, the, the best Dutch player from 1974, Johan Cruyff, did not go to that World Cup. But it's not because of politics. It's actually because his family had been through a terrible ordeal in Barcelona. They had been almost kidnapped and sort of held ransom. So he didn't want to go for personal reasons. He just didn't fancy going to Argentina. Um, Argentina win that final 3-1 in extra time. I mean, to be honest, they are still a good team. I mean, it's not like the Argentine team of 1978 is not a good team. And they beat the Dutch. It's a very sort of bitter, dirty game, but they beat them fair and square. The Videla, the head of the regime, hands over the trophy. The punches the ticker tape. I mean, the ticker tape is incredible from the stands, these blizzards of sort of white and blue. But it's the stories about what happens next that are really kind of unpleasant. So um, 
the, the place where you were tortured if you were a dissident was the Navy Petty Officers School of Mechanics. And that was close enough to the stadium, the Monumental in Buenos Aires, that you could hear the crowd roaring. And the guards would put on the, the, the commentary on their radio so the prisoners could hear it. But a lot of the prisoners found it very distressing because they realized that this was a great victory for the hunter. Yeah. And they realized they're cheering the Argentine team, but they're also yeah. cheering. And they realized how little how little the public were thinking about them, that they were all thinking about the football. And the story goes that um at the end of the final, the torturers are celebrating next to their their victims. So there's a guy called El Tigre, Captain Acosta, who's one of the most notorious, who, who makes a point of listening to the match with his, his victims. But then in a really sort of sinister development, some of the torturers get some of the prisoners and they take them out of the prison in a Peugeot 504. They take them out to tour Buenos Aires to see the people celebrating, to sort of show them, you know, the support. The love for the regime. And they even yeah. take them for a pizza. And one of them, the prisoners, is a, a woman called Graciela D'Aleo. And she puts her head through the sunroof of the car, like looks out of the roof at all the people. And she said later, I stood up on that seat and I looked at the multitude. And it was a, a moment of terrible solitude. I was crying. And I was certain that if I began to shout that I was one of the disappeared, that no one would even notice. Yeah. And and that is, uh, I mean, that is a, a kind of preview of the emotions, I guess, that the families of the laborers who died building the stadium in Qatar will be feeling when the ticker tape comes down yeah. at the final and all that. So, um, as we say, the story of the World Cup is about so much more than sport. I mean, sport is incredibly important, but it's important not least because of the uses to which it can be put. Yeah. And we'll be talking um, about this tomorrow, won't we? Because So tomorrow, Tom, um, we will be welcoming onto the podcast uh, somebody who's played at a World Cup and not just played at a World Cup. Got a hat-trick. Yeah, has, well, more than a hat-trick, was the top scorer at the 1986 World Cup, and that is the former England captain, Gary Lineker, who's now the face of football in this country, in Britain, but he's also very closely involved with the World Cup. I mean, he presented the draw in the Kremlin in 2018, and he'll be talking about that with us. He'll be talking about his thoughts about having the World Cup in Qatar, about what the World Cup says about history and politics in the last few decades. And then once we've talked to Gary, Tom, we'll be embarking on our 32 uh, episode <laughs> marathon. Yes, we will. About aspects we of will. history from the competing countries, from the White Rose movement in Germany to what is it? Prehistoric Serbia? Have you got? Yeah, prehistoric. Yes, the possibly the invention of of uh, writing in Serbia in five thousand five hundred BC. Um, and I, I have to say that um, doing um, podcasts on aspects of his thirty two countries, um, lots of which Dominic, I think we should put our hands up and say we're not particularly familiar with. You're not that for us, <laughs> it's been. I mean, it's been an incredible. Yeah, brilliant. Process of discovery, it has. isn't it? Uh, a, Cameroonian, a Cameroonian general who fought for Peter the Great, um, slavery in Senegal, uh, the history of Qatar. Uh, the, Re- the Ashanti. Yeah. Uh, the Maid of Holland. The Costa Rican uh, Civil War, Tom. Oh, yes, yes. Um. With uh, Dr. Valverde <laughs> and Don Pepe. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Somerton Man, yeah. Australia's most intriguing murder mystery story. It's actually, um, when, I, when I look back, I mean, Tom and I have spent, you know, months, years of our life. <laughs> we start doing it in August. Did we start recording I them think in we August, did, yeah, we? recording these podcasts. And we can't wait to release them to an unsuspecting world. Uh. <laughs> I know. They'll just keep rolling forward like... Um, Dutch footballers in 1974. Just hope that we uh, we get a slightly better result than they did. Yes. Who are the Germans in this analogy? That's a terrible... Let's not answer that question. There are no other podcasts. Right. Uh, <laughs> we will see you tomorrow uh, when we will be joined by Gary Lineker. And until then, thank you very much and goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's 
restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 